0: Chapter One of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Bell A New England Girlhood, Outlined from Memory by Lucy Larcombe. Chapter One Up and Down the Lane it is strange that the spot of earth where we were born should make such a difference to us people can live and grow anywhere but people as well as plants have their habitat a place where they belong and where they find their happiest because their most natural life if i had opened my eyes upon this planet elsewhere than in this northeastern corner of massachusetts elsewhere than on this green rocky strip of shore between beverly bridge and misery islands It seems to me as if I must have been somebody else, and not myself. These gray ledges hold me by the roots as they do the bayberry bushes, the sweet fern, and the rock saxifrage. When I look from my window over the tree-tops to the sea, I can almost fancy that from the deck of some one of those inward-bound vessels the wistful eyes of the lady arbella might be turned towards this very hillside and that mine were meeting hers in sympathy across the graves of two hundred and fifty years for winthrop's fleet led by the ship that bore her name must have passed into harbour that way dear and gracious spirit the memory of her brief sojourn here has left new england more truly consecrated ground sweetest of womanly pioneers It is as if an angel in passing on to heaven just touched with her wings this rough coast of ours. In those primitive years, before any town but Salem had been named, this whole region was known as Cape Ann's Side, and about ten years after Winthrop's arrival, my first ancestor's name appears among those of other hardy settlers of the neighborhood. No record has been found of his coming, but emigration by that time had grown so rapid that ships' lists were no longer carefully preserved. And then he was but a simple yeoman, a tiller of the soil. One who must have loved the sea, however, for he moved nearer and nearer towards it, from Agawam through Wenham woods, until the close of the seventeenth century found his descendants, my own great-great-grandfather's family planted in a romantic homestead nook on a hillside, overlooking wide gray spaces of the bay at the part of Beverly known as The Farms. The situation was beautiful, and home attachments proved tenacious, the family claim to the farm having only been resigned within the last thirty or forty years. I am proud of my unlettered forefathers, who were also too humbly proud to care whether their names would be remembered or not for they were God-fearing men, and had been persecuted for their faith long before they found their way either to Old or New England. The name is rather an unusual one, and has been traced back from Wales, and the Isle of Wight, through France, to Languedoc and Piedmont, a little hamlet in the south of France, still bearing in it what was probably the original spelling, La Combe. There is a family shield in existence, showing a hill surmounted by a tree, and a bird with spread wings above it might symbolize flight in times of persecution from the mountains to the forests and thence to heaven or to the free skies of this new world but it is certain that my own immediate ancestors were both indifferent and ignorant as to questions of pedigree and accepted with sturdy dignity an inheritance of hard work and the privileges of poverty leaving the same bequest to their descendants and poverty has its privileges. When there is very little of the seen and temporal to intercept spiritual vision, unseen and eternal realities are, or may be, more clearly beheld. To have been born of people of integrity and profound faith in God is better than to have inherited material wealth of any kind. And to those serious-minded, reticent progenitors of mine, looking out from their lonely fields across the lonelier sea, their faith must have been everything. My father's parents both died years before my birth. My grandmother had been left a widow with a large family in my father's boyhood, and he, with the rest, had to toil early for a livelihood. She was an earnest christian woman of keen intelligence and unusual spiritual perception she was supposed by her neighbours to have the gift of second sight and some remarkable stories are told of her knowledge of distant events while they were occurring or just before they took place her dignity of presence and character must have been noticeable a relative of mine who has a very little child was taken by her mother to visit my grandmother told me that she had always remembered the aged woman's solemnity of voice and bearing, and her mother's deferential attitude towards her, and she was so profoundly impressed by it all at the time, that when they had left the house, and were on their homeward path through the woods, she looked up into her mother's face and asked in a whisper, "'Mother, was that God?' I used sometimes to feel a little resentment at my fate in not having been born at the old Beverly Farms home place, as my father and uncles and aunts and some of my cousins had been. But perhaps I had more of the romantic and legendary charm of it than if I had been brought up there, for my father, in his communicative moods, never wearied of telling us about his childhood, and we felt that we still had a birthright claim upon that picturesque spot through him. Besides, it was only three or four miles away, and before the day of railroads that was thought nothing of as a walk by young or old. But in fact I first saw the light in the very middle of Beverly, in full view of the town clock in the Old South steeple. I believe there is an Old South in nearly all these first-settled cities and villages of eastern Massachusetts. The town wore a half-rustic air of antiquity then with its old-fashioned people and weather-worn houses, for I was born while my mother country was still in her youth just rounding the first quarter of her hundred years. Primitive ways of doing things had not wholly ceased during my childhood. They were kept up in these old towns longer than elsewhere. We used tallow candles and oil lamps, and sat by open fireplaces." There was always a tinder-box in some safe-corner or other and fire was kindled by striking flint and steel upon the tinder what magic it seemed to me when i was first allowed to strike that wonderful spark and light the kitchen fire the fireplace was deep and there was a settle in the chimney-corner where three of us youngest girls could sit together and toast our toes in the andirons two continental soldiers in full uniform, marching one after the other, while we looked up the chimney into a square of blue sky and sometimes caught a snowflake on our foreheads, or sometimes smirched our clean aprons, high-necked and long-sleeved ones known as tears, against the swinging crane with its sooty pot-hooks and trammels. The coffee-pot was set for breakfast over hot coals on a three-legged bit of iron called a trivet, potatoes were roasted in the ashes and the thanksgiving turkey in a tin kitchen the business of turning the spit being usually delegate to some of us small folk who were only too willing to burn our faces in honor of the annual festival there were brick ovens in the chimney corner where the great bakings were done but there was also an iron article called a dutch oven in which delicious bread could be baked over the coals at short notice, and there was never anything that tasted better than my mother's fire-cake, a short cake spread on a smooth piece of board and set up with a flat iron before the blaze, browned on one side and then turned over to be browned on the other. It required some sleight of hand to do that. If I could only be allowed to blow the bellows, the very old people called them belluses, when the fire began to get low, I was a happy girl. Cooking stoves were coming into fashion, but they were clumsy affairs, and our elders thought that no cooking could be quite so nice as that which was done by an open fire. We younger ones revelled in the warm, beautiful glow that we looked back to as a remembered sunset. There is no such home splendour now. When supper was finished, and the tea-kettle was pushed back on the crane, and the backlog had been reduced to a heap of fiery embers, then was the time for listening to sailor-yarns and ghost and witch-legends. The wonder seems somehow to have faded out of those tales of eld, since the gleam of red-hot coals died away from the hearthstone. The shutting up of the great fireplaces and the introduction of stoves marks an era— the abdication of shaggy romance and the enthronement of elegant commonplace, sometimes, alas, the opposite of elegant, at the New England fireside. Have we indeed a fireside any longer in the old sense? It hardly seems as if the young people of today can really understand the poetry of English domestic life, reading it, as they must, by a reflected illumination from the past what would Cotter's Saturday Night have been if Burns had written it by the opaque heat of a stove instead of at his wee bit ingle blinky bodily? New England, as it used to be, was so much like Scotland in many of its ways of doing and thinking that it almost seems as if that tender poem of hearth and home life had been written for us too. I can see the features of my father, who died when I was a little child, whenever I read the familiar verse The cheerful supper done with serious face They round the ingle form a circle wide, the sire turns o'er with patriarchal grace, The big ha bible ants his father's pride. A grave, thoughtful face his was, lifted up so grandly amid that blooming semicircle of boys and girls, all gathered silently in the glow of the ruddy firelight. The great family Bible had the look upon its leathern covers of a book that had never been new, and we honoured it the more for its apparent age. Its companion was the Westminster Assemblies and Shorter Catechism, out of which my father asked us questions on Sabbath afternoons when the tea-table had been cleared he ended the exercise with a prayer standing up with his face turned toward the wall my most vivid recollection of his living face is as i saw it reflected in a mirror while he stood thus praying his closed eyes the paleness and seriousness of his countenance awed me i never forgot that look i saw it but once again when as a child of six or seven years i was lifted to a footstool beside his coffin to gaze upon his face for the last time. It wore the same expression that it did in prayer, paler but no longer careworn. So peaceful, so noble. They left me standing there a long time, and I could not take my eyes away. I had never thought my father's face a beautiful one until then, but I believe it must have been so always." I know that he was a studious man, fond of what was called solid reading. He delighted in problems of navigation. He was for many years the master of a merchant vessel sailing to various European ports, in astronomical calculations and historical computations. A rhyming genius in the town who undertook to hit off the peculiarities of well-known residents characterized my father as Philosophic Ben, pointing to the stars cries land ahead his reserved abstracted manner though his gravity concealed a fund of rare humor kept us children somewhat aloof from him but my mother's temperament formed a complete contrast to his she was chatty and social rosy-cheeked and dimpled with bright blue eyes and soft dark curling hair which she kept pinned up under her white lace cap border Not even the eldest child remembered her without her cap, and when some of us asked her why she never let her pretty curls be visible, she said, "'Your father liked to see me in a cap. I put it on soon after we were married to please him. I always have worn it, and I always shall wear it for the same reason.'" My mother had that sort of sunshiny nature which easily shifts to shadow, like the atmosphere of an April day. Cheerfulness held sway with her, except occasionally, when her domestic cares grew too overwhelming, but her spirits rebounded quickly from discouragement. Her father was the only one of our grandparents who had survived, to my time, of French descent, piquant, merry, exceedingly polite, and very fond of us children, whom he was always treating to raisins and peppermints and rules for good behavior. He had been a soldier in the Revolutionary War, the greatest distinction we could imagine. And he was also the sexton of the oldest church in town, and had charge of the winding up of the town clock, and the ringing of the bell on weekdays and Sundays, and the tolling for funerals, into which mysteries he sometimes allowed us youngsters a furtive glimpse. I did not believe that there was another grandfather so delightful as ours in all the world. "'Uncles, aunts, and cousins were plentiful in the family, but they did not live near enough for us to see them very often, excepting one aunt, my father's sister, for whom I was named. She was fair, with large clear eyes that seemed to look far into one's heart, with an expression at once penetrating and benignant. To my childish imagination she was an embodiment of serene and lofty goodness.' I wished and hoped that by bearing her baptismal name I might become like her, and when I found out its signification I learned that Lucy means with light. I wished it more earnestly still, for her beautiful character was just such an illumination to my young life as I should most desire mine to be to the lives of others. My aunt, like my father, was always studying something some map or book always lay open before her when I went to visit her, in her picturesque old house with its sloping roof and tall well-sweep. And she always brought out some book or picture for me from her quaint, old-fashioned chest of drawers. I still possess The Children in the Wood, which she gave me as a keepsake when I was about ten years old. Our relatives form the natural setting of our childhood. We understand ourselves best, and are best understood by others, through the persons who came nearest to us in our earliest years. Those larger planets held our little one to its orbit, and lent it their brightness. Happy indeed is the infancy which is surrounded only by the loving and the good. Besides those who are of my kindred, I had several aunts by courtesy, or rather by the privilege of neighborhood, who seemed to belong to my babyhood indeed the family hearthstone came near being the scene of a tragedy to me through the blind fondness of one of these the adjective is literal this dear old lady almost sightless sitting in a low chair far in the chimney-corner where she had been placed on her first call to see the new baby took me upon her lap and so they say unconsciously let me slip off into the coals i was rescued unsinged however and it was one of the earliest accomplishments of my infancy to thread my poor, half-blind Aunt Stanley's needles for her. We were close neighbors and gossips until my fourth year. Many an hour I sat by her side, drawing a needle and thread through a bit of calico, under the delusion that I was sewing, while she repeated all sorts of juvenile sing-songs of which her memory seemed full for my entertainment." There used to be a legend current among my brothers and sisters that this aunt unwittingly taught me to use a reprehensible word. One of her ditties began with the lines, "'Miss Lucy was a charming child. She never said, I won't.' After hearing this once or twice, the willful negative was continually upon my lips, doubtless a symptom of what was dormant within, a will perhaps not quite so aggressive as it was obstinate.' But she meant only to praise me and please me, and dearly I loved to stay with her in her cosy upstairs room across the lane that the sun looked into nearly all day. Another adopted aunt lived downstairs in the same house. This one was a sober woman. Life meant business to her, and she taught me to sew in earnest with a knot at the end of my thread, although it was only upon clothing for my rag children absurd creatures of my own invention, limbless and destitute of features, except as now and then one of my older sisters would, upon my earnest petition, outline a face for one of them with pen and ink. I love them, none the less, far better than I did the London doll that lay in waxen state in an upper drawer at home, the fine lady that did not wish to be played with, but only to be looked at and admired." this latter aunt i regarded as a woman of great possessions she owned the land beside us and opposite us her well was close to our door a well of the coldest and clearest water i ever drank and it abundantly supplied the whole neighbourhood the hill behind her house was our general playground and i supposed she owned that too since through her dooryard and over her stone wall was our permitted thoroughfare thither i imagine that those were her buttercups that we gathered when we got over the wall and held under each other's chin to see by the reflection who was fond of butter and surely the yellow toad flax we called it lady slipper that grew in the rock crevices was hers for we found it nowhere else the blue gill over the ground unmistakably belonged to her for it carpeted an unused triangular corner of her garden enclosed by a leaning fence gray and gold with seaside lichens its blue was beautiful but its pungent earthy odor can smell it now repelled us from the damp corner where it grew it made us think of graves and ghosts and i think we were forbidden to go there we much preferred to sit on the sunken curbstones in the shade of the broad leaved burdocks and shape their spiny balls into chairs and cradles and sofas for our dollies, or to play school on the doorstep, or to climb over the wall and feel the freedom of the hill. We were a neighborhood of large families, and most of us enjoyed the privilege of a little wholesome neglect our tether was a long one and when grown a little older we occasionally asked to have it lengthened a maternal i don't care amounted to almost unlimited liberty the hill itself was well-nigh boundless in its capacities for juvenile occupation besides its miniature precipices that walled in some of the neighbors gardens and its slanting sides worn smoothly by the feet of many childish generations there were partly quarried ledges which had shaped themselves into rock stairs carpeted with lovely mosses in various patterns these were the winding ways up our castle towers with breakfast rooms and boudoirs among the landings where we set our tables for expected guests with bits of broken china and left our numerous rag children tucked in asleep under mullein blankets or plantain coverlets while we ascended to the topmost turret to watch for our ships coming in from sea. For leagues of ocean were visible from the tip-top of the ledge, a tiny cleft peak that held always little rain-pool for thirsty birds that now and then stopped as they flew over, to dip their beaks and glance shyly at us, as if they wished to share our games. We could see the steeples and smokes of Salem in the distance, and the hill as it descended lost itself in mowing fields that slid again into the river. Beyond that was Ryleside and Folly Hill, and they looked so very far off. They called it Over to Greens, across the river. I thought it was because of the thick growth of dark green junipers that covered the cliffside down to the water's edge. But they were only given the name of the farmer who owned the land. Whenever there was an unusual barking of dogs in the distance, they said it was Over to Greens. That barking of dogs made the place seem very mysterious to me. Our lane ran parallel with the hill and the mowing fields, and down our lane we were always free to go. It was a genuine lane, all ups and downs, and too narrow for a street, although at last they have levelled it and widened it, and made a commonplace thoroughfare of it. I am glad that my baby life knew it in all its queer original irregularities, for it seemed to have a character of its own, like many of its inhabitants, all the more charming because it was unlike anything but itself. The hill, too, is lost now, buried under houses. Our lane came to an end at some bars that led us into another lane, or rather a footpath or cow path, bordered with cornfields and orchards. We were still on home ground for my father's vegetable garden and orchard were here. After a long straight stretch the path suddenly took an abrupt turn, widening into a cart-road, and then to a tumble-down wharf, and there was the river. An arm of the sea, I was told that our river was, and it did seem to reach around the town and hold it in a liquid embrace. Twice a day the tide came in and filled its muddy bed with a sparkling flood— so it was a river, only half the time, but at high tide it was a river indeed, all that a child could wish with its boats and its sloops, and now and then that most available craft for a crew of children- a gondolo. we easily transformed the spelling into gondola, and in fancy were afloat on the Venetian waters under some overhanging balcony, perhaps at the very perhaps at the very palace of the Doges. "'willingly blind to the reality of a mud-scow "'leaning against some rickety wharf-posts covered with barnacles. "'Sometimes a neighbour-boy who was the fortunate owner of a boat "'would row us down the river for a fearful, because forbidden, joy. "'The widening waters made us tremble with dread and longing "'for what might be beyond, "'for when we had passed under the piers of the bridge, "'the estuary broadened into the harbour and the open sea.' then somebody on board would tell a story of children who had drifted away beyond the harbour bar and the lighthouse and were drowned and our boyish helmsman would begin to look grave and anxious and would turn his boat around and row us back swiftly to the safe gundelow and tumble down wharf the cars rush into the station now right over our riverside playground i can often hear the mirthful shout of boys and girls under the shriek of the steam whistle no dream of a railroad had then come to the quiet old town but it was a wild train of children that ran homeward in the twilight up the narrow lane with wind-shod feet and hair flying like manes of young colts and light hearts bounding to their own footsteps How good and dear our plain, two-story dwelling-house looked to us as we came in sight of it, and what sweet odours stole out to meet us from the white-fenced enclosure of our small garden, from peach-trees and lilac bushes in bloom, from bergamot and balm and beds of chamomile. Sometimes we would find the pathetic figure of white-haired Larkin Moore, the insane preacher his two canes laid aside waiting in our dooryard for any audience that he could gather boys and girls were as welcome as anybody he would seat us in a row on the green slope and give us half an hour or so of incoherent exhortation to which we attended respectfully if not reverently for his whole manner showed that though demented he was deeply in earnest he seemed there in the twilight like a dazed angel who had lost his way and had half forgotten his errand, which yet he must try to tell anybody who would listen. I have heard my mother say that sometimes he would ask if he might take her baby in his arms and sing to it, and that though she was half afraid herself, the baby, I like to fancy I was that baby, seemed to enjoy it, and played gleefully with the old man's flowing gray locks. Good Larkin Moore was well known through the two neighboring counties, Essex and Middlesex, We saw him afterward on the banks of the Merrimack. He always wore a loose calico tunic over his trousers, and when the mood came upon him he started off with two canes, seeming to think he could travel faster as a quadruped than as a biped. He was entirely harmless. His only wish was to preach or to sing. A characteristic antidote used to be told of him, that once, as a stage-coach containing only a few passengers passed him on the road, he asked the favor of a seat on the top, and was refused. There was many miles between him and his destination, but he did not upbraid the ungracious driver. He only swung his two canes a little more briskly, and kept breast of the horses all the way, entering the town side by side with the inhospitable vehicles a running reproach to the churl on the box. There was another wanderer, a blind woman, whom my mother treated with great respect on her annual pilgrimages. She brought with her some printed rhymes to sell, purporting to be composed by herself, and beginning with the verse, "'I, Nancy Welch, was born and bred in Essex County, Marblehead, and when I was an infant quite, the Lord deprived me of my sight.' I labored under the delusion that blindness was a sort of insanity, and I used to run away when this pilgrim came, for she was not talkative like Larkin Moore. I fancied she disliked children, and so I shrank from her. There were other odd estrays going about who were either well-known or could account for themselves. The one human phenomenon that filled us little ones with mortal terror was an unknown man with a pack on his back. I do not know what we thought he would do with us, but the sight of one always sent us breathless with fright to the shelter of the maternal wing. I did not at all like the picture of Christian on his way to the wicket-gate in Pilgrim's Progress before I had read the book, because he had a pack on his back. But there really was nothing to be afraid of in those simple honest old times. I suppose we children would not have known how happy and safe we were in our secluded lane. If we had not conjured up a few imaginary fears. Long as it is since the rural features of our lane were entirely obliterated, my feet often go back and press in memory its grass grown borders, and in delight and liberty I am a child again. Its narrow limits were once my whole known world; even then it seemed to me as if it might lead everywhere. And it was indeed, but the beginning of a road which must lengthen and widen beneath my feet for ever. Chapter One.